This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with anthropologist Scott Atron. He holds appointments at the University of Michigan, the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York, and France's National Center for Scientific Research. I spoke with him on February 1st, 2011, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in a private recording studio in New York City. Download the MP3 of the produced show with Scott Atron at onbeing.org. Let me make sure first that this works. One, two. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hello. Hello, Chris. Mm-hmm. Oh, Chris. <laughs> Hello, Chris. Still nothing? Uh, well, they, they probably could hear, hear us. We can't hear that. Could he not hear you then? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, did you hear me talking mm-hmm. to the microphone? Uh, that's what I'm working on now, okay? Hold on one second. I know. Mm-hmm. Hi, Chris. Hi, here we are. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm sorry about this delay, but uh, here's your guest. Okay. Hello? 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 Hi, can Hi. you hear me? Yes, I can. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, thanks for doing this. Sure. Um, I heard you uh, on the BBC, I think it was the middle of the night, maybe a couple months ago. Uh-huh. From London, yes. And I wrote your name down in the, in the dark and knew that I had to have you on the show. Um, well, thanks. Well, could you... Uh, I want to hear how you say your last name. Atron. Atron. All right. So do you have any questions of me before we start? Yeah. I mean, what is your focus going to be, just so I put my mind in the right frame? I'm, my focus is going to be the what you were talking, what you're writing about in your book, talking to the enemy, and I think what you spend your life doing. <laughs> um, okay. I don't. I don't. I don't do book interviews per se. I, I find that when people are on book tour, it's the least revealing and interesting time for them to talk about what they do. So I'm really interested in the sweep of your work and your thought and what you know. And of course, we will also tell people about the book. But, so okay. I'm just gonna... in case you are at all interested, I'm a little bleary. I was on the, I was on, you know, communicating with the Muslim Brothers, oh. the head of the Egyptian Muslim Brothers in Cairo, all this morning before they pushed off to the, uh, to the demonstrations. You were talking to them. Yep. So, oh wow. Where, you're in New York now, right? Right. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get a plane, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, we had this planned before. All of this started happening. So, and the other thing I'm aware of is it's very fluid. And so, I I want to talk about, you know, how you're watching what's happening, and understanding that uh, contextually, so that you know, if we put this on the air two weeks from now, <laughs> whatever has happened, it will still be relevant. But I I was absolutely I was really excited um, 
as this all started to unfolding, unfold to know that we were going to be talking. Well, thanks. So let's, uh, let's just begin. Um, and so, so uh, um, just but as we begin, I'm interested, I mean, you, you have spent a lot of time in recent years studying the power of religion and sacred values in human life. And I did wonder, was there uh, any kind of religious background um, to your life, to your childhood? Oh, not much. I mean, I'm, I, I had a Jewish upbringing and uh, moderate religious, not very, very much. But I'm, I'm pretty much non-religious myself. Mm-hmm. But I was always interested in uh, religious and ethnic conflict. And uh, so I started, uh, especially, I, actually, I first started working on this stuff in the Middle East within the context of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. Mm. And then sort of branched out across the world as my interests became more general in terms of how human beings think more broadly and what brings them to the ideas they have. I mean, why are there certain universals uh, and uh, general patterns of reasoning and behavior across the species? Hmm. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and basically what, what I've sort of found is that uh, these notions of transcendent or sacred values is really what got us out of the caves and drove civilizations forward and is responsible for whether civilizations uh, survive or mm. or demise. Mm. Sort of what what um, Thomas Hobbes called the privileges of of absurdity. Say preposterousness. Say what you, well, you, these, that these look preposterous or they are preposterous. Mm-hmm. I mean think of b- basic beliefs and uh, religious propositions. They are literally preposterous. That is, you can't even make sense of the meaning of the words. So something like, uh, you know, God is one in three or a sentient Hmm. being that has no body. It's literally senseless. It's it's like saying, you know, A and not A or um, a bachelor is a married man. I mean, it just literally doesn't make sense. And so you contextually, you know, that's one of the reasons why it can't be given a truth value means it can't be falsified or verified. Mm. There's no logical or empirical arguments you can use for or really against it. So people give it contextualized interpretation that's sensible in the context of their lives and times. And that's what makes it um, able to survive in so many different uh, times and across so many different cultures. You know, I... Um I was interested to see that you'd worked with Margaret Mead when you were a young anthropologist. Is that right? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wondered if if you think she would have. Is, you you made kind of a, quite a big move in your career. It sounds to me from field work in the rainforest with Maya Indians now to really, really focusing on global terrorism and also this kind of issue. If you talked about this, how these sacred values um, mo- mobilize human beings. Um, what, what do you think she would have thought of this move of yours? Oh, she would have, she, she would have, I think she would have supported it. I mean, she was a very intellectually curious person and always willing to change her ideas uh, about things. So, for example, when she was young, when she was like the first white woman out in New Guinea in uh, cannibal land, uh, she was an intrepid, an intrepid person. Mm-hmm. Um, she was fighting uh, together with uh, her teachers, uh, Ruth Benedict and Franz Boas at the time, sort of founders of American anthropology, fighting the sort of fascist views and Stalinist views. The fascist view was that um, certain cultures were privileged biologically with intelligence and senses of beauty or whatever, 
And the Stalinist view was that the mind actually has nothing in it. It's a blank slate. And so if you just um, order experience in the right way, you can create the perfect man. And those two antipodes were vying for domination of the world at the time. And she saw it as her sort of political struggle, as well as intellectual struggle, to try to, to try to understand human beings as basically falling in between, as having you know, biological capacities uh, that have evolved over the course of millions of years, and yet have enough plasticity so that there's interesting cultural variation. And so she was extremely curious, and she saw nothing in the inevitability of uh, societies or in their march towards perfection or imperfection. She always thought that people could change, and that there would always be good and evil. Mm. There would always be a struggle between war and peace. And there would always be an intellectual curiosity for what is common to all of humankind and what is particular. And mm. I, was in, I was in mathematics, actually, when I went to Columbia back in the late 60s. But it was a time of fervent. And, you know, as we're sort of taking apart the university, she comes along and says, you know, you young men and women, this is not the way to go about doing things. Mm. You should be talking to your uh, congressmen and your rabbis and your community leaders and uh, trying to uh, shape things in a reasonable way, which we thought was crazy. So I, ye <laughs> I, I yelled at her, and she said, hey, young man, well, in that case, why don't you uh, come up to my office, uh, and we'll discuss this further. And I went there. I'll never forget. I had sort of red, white, and blue pants, a tank top, and a <laughs> top hat. And uh, we started discussing, and she said, well, I'll tell you what, I have to go out, and uh, do you need a job, by the way? I said, I, yeah, I could use some money. And she said, well, why don't you answer the phone? And uh, I said, okay. So my first call is from Andy Warhol, who goes... Uh, <laughs> he was calling Margaret Mead. He was calling Margaret Mead. He wanted to make a film, The Elysian Fields, where she and Salvador Dali would have to run around naked. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I'm up in this tower in the American Museum of Natural History. It's like the, the cave of Alibaba. There's like 10,000 skulls <laughs> from all over the place. There's these Zulu spears. There's these Zuni effigies. <laughs> and I get this call from Andy Warhol. And I go, man, this is, this is, this is the career I want. <laughs> oh. So, and then, yeah. Oh. Well, well go. Uh, yes. you, you, you are editing this, right? So Yeah, we're editing this. So we get to have a real conversation. So keep going. It's okay. So then... Uh, then, you know, so I, I started studying anthropology, and then I heard this uh, lecture uh, on universal linguistics by a student of Noam Chomsky's, of, uh, a Swedish phoneticist. And I said, wow, you know, that is really interesting. If that's true, then we really do have some interesting properties of the mind that no one's really looked at before. And this could be a, a paradigm for understanding how the human mind works in general. So um, I said to Margaret, do you mind if I uh, try to organize something between uh, Chomsky and Jean Piaget, who was also discussing universals, mm. but from a very different view in, in Geneva? And she said, yeah, okay. I said, yeah, but I need some money. So she, she, she helped me find the money to get to Europe and convince Piaget to debate Chomsky. And I brought in some, some Nobel Prize winners in biology at the time, Jacques Bonneau and François Jacob, and another anthropologist, French anthropologist, Claude Lévi-Strauss. And we locked ourselves up in an uh, abbey north of Paris back in 1974. And uh, that sort of destroyed my intellectual career because... 
I realized how much how little I really knew, and then I uh, took off for years, uh, wandered around Afghanistan, places like that, and uh, got interested in sort of the diversity of worldviews and uh, takes on how the world is put together, and discovered that these notion of sort of transcendent or sacred values is really what drives people forward, what frames who they are, what their existence is all about. It's not really about struggle over economic um, possibilities or resources. Those are secondary to the fact that you need them to create who you are. Mm. And even more interesting was the who you are, the groups that are created, human groups, are so different from other animals in that they're mostly groups of genetic strangers. I mean, take the notion of the nation. It's a really imagined group of fictive kin. Mm. And yet people are willing to make the greatest sacrifices to die and to kill for these groups of genetic strangers that are bound together by these preposterous beliefs. And mm-hmm. and then I started thinking about our own society's preposterous beliefs, like human rights. I mean, think of something like the Declaration of Independence, where they're taking on the mightiest empire in the world at the time, and uh, they say they're pledging their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor for inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, that's crazy. If you look at all of human history up till then, you know, 200,000 years of human history, it's dominated by things like cannibalism and slavery and oppression of women and minorities and infanticide. And all of a sudden, sort of these nuts come out of nowhere and say there's going to be things like equality and liberty and freedom. And they say that, that we're endowed by the creator. It's all natural. I mean, that really is preposterous. Right, right. And it worked. I mean, they actually engineered this through different laws and moors and wars, and not by, you know, any kind of scientific discovery or any any real root in, in our natural biological endowment. Mm-hmm. And they changed the world. So, I, you know, as you apply this... Um this mindset, right? This approach, these these core questions that you named, basically, you know, how do human beings think? How do they act? Uh, how do they? Ch- how are they capable of change over the time? Over time, you've been applying that to this fem- phenomenon of um, global terrorism or or breeding grounds for terrorism. Um, and I know that uh, uh, over these past few years, uh, when I've interviewed um, Muslim. Scholars and thinkers, for example, about um, Islam and trying to get at to, trying to understand um, their roots of violence in the name of Islam. Um, people will often kind of reflexively reflexively object that what we're you know ultimately trying to do is justify violence or relativize extremism or humanize crime that needs to be punished. And I wonder if that's also uh, a criticism that you come under, just just for doing the work you do, for asking the questions you ask. Sure. I mean, I, uh, you know, the people, if when, I, when I talk to uh, religious leaders, especially those involved in things like jihad, the first thing they do, of course, is give me a Koran and try to convert me to their particular point of view, and then are fairly highly suspicious that I'm trying to uh, hook them into uh, into uh, saying that uh, their philosophy of life is a violent philosophy mm-hmm. of life. Um, on the other side, I get it from, from sort of secular liberals uh, that I'm, you know, a patsy for these guys and that I 
I'm an apologist for religion. You know, sort of Sam Harrison's latest book points out that I'm moral relativist, mm-hmm. which I really am not, and that um, my interest is in uh, just sort of this touchy-feely, happy hermeneutics, hippie mm-hmm. hermeneutics, where everybody can get along in the world. But my interest in, in dealing with the jihadis is, is, is both general and concrete. The general part is I'm always interested in the, those people who are as different from me as possible, whether in the Maya rainforest, because except for wilderness freaks, nobody in our society could last months out there in the middle of the rainforest and survive, but these guys do it all the time mm-hmm. without any pretension. Or these jihadis, say suicide bombers who blow themselves up, which seems to go against all sort of evolutionary dispositions, for this greater cause. Now, nothing could be further from me. So my idea is that if I can understand what moves these people, I can much better understand sort of what it is to be human. Mm -hmm. And I find they're really just people like everybody else. And you're also talking to people who are in those extended spheres of human beings, right? But who who don't actually make that move across the line of... You know, bombing a subway train. Uh, right. Uh, well, the, if, if you look, so, so, so if you take, you know, these polls, if you put any credence in them, like the Gallup and Pew polls, you find that about 7% of the Muslim world has some sympathy for bin Laden. Mm-hmm. That's about 100 million people out of the 1.3 or 4 billion Muslims in the world. But then if you look who actually is willing to do something violent, you find that it's extremely, extremely small number of people. I mean, in the United States, only about 500 have been arrested, um, less than 100 for anything serious. There's only been actually one successful attack against the United States despite this crazy hysteria that our society has bought into. And you ask yourself, in Europe, there's been a few thousand, but that's mainly because the conditions of Muslims in Europe like blacks and ghettos in the United States are much worse, where in the United States they buy into the American dream and they achieve it within the first generation. Even third generations of Muslims don't in Europe because the social fabric isn't built for immigrants. Mm-hmm. So there's more receptivity to, to a sort of counterculture. Right. But when you look at, of those thousands out of the 100 million who actually do anything, you find that the greatest predictor, it has nothing to do with religion. The greatest predictor is whether they belong to a soccer club or some action-oriented group of friends. Mm-hmm. In fact, almost none of them had any religious education whatsoever. They're all born again sort of between the ages of 18 and 22. Uh, none of them went to madrasas. And there's a simple reason why no global jihadi group uses madrasas, except for, for a very few elite madrasas in Indonesia used by the Jamaslamiya and the Taliban who have nothing to do really with global jihad. They come from the rural poor. And the reason nobody wants anybody from madrasas is because in madrasas you don't learn anything except the Quran, and they need people who can do GPS and computers and learn foreign languages and blend into society. So they yeah. avoid madrasa students like the plague. So if it's not religious inculcation, if it's not religious training, if it's not even religious tradition, what could it possibly be? And again, it's... It's, first of all, who your friends are. That's the greatest predictor of mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. And then there's a sort of geopolitical aspect to it. I mean, people talk about a clash of civilizations. I think that's dead wrong. There's a crash of territorial cultures right. across the world. Yeah, I want you to talk about that. I, I think that's a very intriguing distinction you draw, that it's not a clash of civilizations, but you've also said a crash of civilizations. 
So tell me, tell me what you what what you're describing there. Well, globalization, of course, has provided access to large masses of humanity to a better standard of living, uh, better health, better education. But it has also left uh, in its wake um, many traditional societies that are falling apart, that just can't compete because they can't lock out uh, commerce and competition with the outside world and their sort of indigenous or native Modes of commerce and organization just can't compete with these other ones in the outside world, so they collapse. And so what you have is young people especially sort of flailing around looking for a sense of social identity as these traditional territorial cultures and their influence disappears. And it it's happening across all of the sort of middle latitudes of Eurasia. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to hook up with one another peer-to-peer, not horizontally. And in this... You mean not vertically, like horizontally, yes. peer-to-peer. Mm-hmm. Right, not, not vertically, but mm-hmm. horizontally. And this is paralleling another new um, development in the history of humanity, and that is this massive media-driven global political awakening, where, again, for the first time in human history, you've got someone in New Guinea who can see the same images as someone in the middle of the Amazon. And so you're, you've got these, these young people, paradoxically, focusing in on a smaller and smaller bandwidth in this sort of global media, trying to hook up with one another and make friends and give themselves a sense of significance. And the jihad comes along. I mean, the jihad, you know, I, I interviewed this, this guy in prison in France who... Uh, wanted to blow up the American embassy. And I asked him, you know, why did you want to do this? And he, he says to me, well, you know, I'm walking along the street one day and someone spit at my sister and called her a salarab, a dirty Arab. And I just couldn't take it anymore. And I realized that this injustice would never leave French society or Western society. So I joined the jihad. I said, yeah, but that has been going on for years. And he goes, yes, but there was no jihad before. Mm-hmm. So it's a sort of receptacle it's a very superficial message. I mean, think about it. You know, I go into places like Sulawesi, which is between Borneo and New Guinea, which is Indonesia. almost the jihadi capital. Yeah, mm-hmm. jihadi capital of the world. There are like 40 militia groups there. Or I go into places like Spain, you know, Madrid, and I find them tuning in on the same message. And you've got to ask yourself, how is that possible today? I mean, the, the, the people in Sulawesi were literally cannibals two generations ago, three generations ago. They have nothing to do with the development of Western civilization in Madrid. Now, how is it that these kids are hooking up with one another and focusing on the same message that they want to go die in Palestine or Afghanistan or Iraq? And the answer is it's created virtually in this media space, and it is attracting these people. Why? Why is it attracting them at this particular moment in time? Well... Again, lots of reasons. They're sort of caught up in the driftwood of, of globalization. You find it's especially pe- appealing to young people in transitional stages in their lives, immigrants, students, people in terms of jobs or mates or between jobs and mates. And it gives a sense of empowerment that, that their own societies certainly don't. I yeah. mean, the message of the jihad is, look, you, any of you, any of you out there, you too can cut off the head of Goliath with a paper cutter. That's what we did. Mm, we mm. changed the world with paper cutters. Mm. That's all you need. All you need is will and truth and meaning. And you will correct injustice in the world and you will be heroic 
and you'll have the greatest adventure of your lives. Hmm. And that's, that's, that's surely powerful. Remember after uh, a few months after 9-11, I, 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 we did a program where I interviewed three men who had early in their lives, right, as adolescent young men, had been fundamentalists, a Jew, a Christian, and a Muslim. And uh, they all used variations on the word intoxication <laughs> to describe how they felt, right? And as you say, how they had felt confused. I've, I've been thinking in recent days a lot about the Muslim man who's now a great uh, jurist, a scholar, um, who talked about how his he he experienced his identity to be completely demoralizing. He was embarrassed to show his Egyptian passport when he traveled in Europe, right? But then when he got close to these circles, as you said, he got this message that he mattered, that he was powerful, and in fact that he had a kind of superiority. And it was that that intoxication of the idea mingled with the intoxication of youth. <laughs> yeah, I... I but that ties that ties also again into the notion of sacred or transcend, mm. transcendent values. Those kinds of values are what really moves people. So let me just sort of give you two anecdotes that comes out of my work with the Madrid bombing. So the Madrid bombing was the first uh, really effective bombing in the sense that it changed a democratically elected government uh, mm. because the uh, Aznar government, the conservative government, had blamed the ETA. And soon the people realized that that was just a, a cover until the elections could take place. And then they demonstrated out in the streets and threw the government out. Headlines across the world were Al-Qaeda strikes in the heart of Europe. And then I went to the trial and I interviewed, you know, the surviving plotters and their families and their friends. And then what I discovered was that of the seven plotters who, when cornered by police, blew themselves up, uh, were actually from a little... Barrio in a northern Moroccan town, Tetuan, called the Jama Mezouak. And so mm -hmm. I went there, and I found out they all grew up within about 200 meters of one another. And then some more of their friends, friends, they all went to the same elementary school. You know, this elementary school had Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. And uh, they all went to the same high school, except for one who was brilliant, and uh, then went to train with the uh, Moroccan Royal Air Force. And then when they blew themselves up, some friends and kinsmen, other young people went to Iraq to blow themselves up. And while I'm in this uh, neighborhood, two things struck me. First, all those kids, none of them had a religious education to speak of. They all came into religion quite late. In fact, some of them right before the plots. And... They were involved in Spain in petty criminal activities, drug activities, drug trading. And I'm finding more and more of jihadis are doing this. Now, there are two reasons for this. One is the success of the United States and other countries in blocking large transfers of funds to organizations that could support the jihad. So 9-11 cost about $500,000. The next most expensive was Madrid, which was about $50,000, mostly funded by drug money. But economic theory tells you that people become petty criminals out of opportunity costs because it's just too hard to make a living in mainstream society, so to re they, they go in for crime. But here's the, here's the uh, paradox in this. It's these guys who are killing themselves. Hmm. Now, what that means is they're sacrificing the totality of their self-interests, which goes against all economic theory, and giving up their lives for an idea. 
So that's the first thing that struck me. Why? Because all of a sudden, they are telling themselves, we really don't want to be criminals. We want to be somebody. We want to be something significant in this world, and this is our chance. And then I started interviewing the, the little kids. Well, first I tried interviewing the 18-year-olds, and I would ask them, you know, who's your hero? And they'd tell me George Bush or Dick Cheney or Don Rumsfeld. They were just pulling my leg. But the, little, <laughs> okay. the, the younger ones don't lie, right? So uh, they're all playing soccer. Uh, there's the world is sort of divided between the Bar Barcelona soccer team and the Real Madrid soccer team. And I'm asking them what they want to be in life. And, you know, their answers are sort of stunning. I mean, the first little kid, eight years old, he tells me I want to be an archaeologist. I say, why? You want to get treasure? He goes, no, I want to find out who we are. And then the next mm. kid says, I want to be a doctor, a surgeon. And then I say, okay, who are your heroes? Number one hero, Ronaldinho, the Barcelona soccer player. Okay. <laughs> Number two hero, the Terminator. No idea. He's related to the present governor of California or past governor of California. And number three was Osama bin Laden. Then I went back a week after Barack Obama's election, and I did the same survey in a few towns. Number one was a sort of tie between soccer guys, Sergio Morales from the Real Madrid team, Ito, a striker from Barcelona. Number two now was Terminator 2. <laughs> and number three, just beating out bin Laden was Barack Obama. So what is that telling us? It's telling us that these young people are looking for something important, and they're looking around for role models in life. And where are they finding them? Well, they're finding them in soccer, which is exciting. They're finding them in action figure heroes, which is also exciting. And these political figures, which seem to agitate everything that's going on. I mean, it's mostly in barber shops and fast food restaurants and cafes and on the streets that people's images of society are formed. Right. And Barack Obama suddenly appears on the scene and is a hope for these young people. They, t they just look at the guy's face, you know, and the color of his skin, and they mm -hmm. say, if he can do it, we can do it. So, so I, I... Yeah. Yeah. Well, so are you... Are you drawing a connection between so let me just go back up a little bit to your idea that that we are in the midst of that 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 people around the world whose human beings identities have have as you've said have traditionally been formed by traditions that are passed on from generation to generation and and vertically transmitted and that we are in an age where um Global political cultures are arising completely differently. Identity, um, this crash of civilizations, as you say, identity is, is unraveling for all kinds of reasons, including technology, or it's being formed in different ways. Yes. And are you, are, you, um, are you drawing connections between this scenario you just described of um, hopes and dreams and, uh, and, and also skewed... Uh, hopes and dreams um, with, with, with this ferment that's now happening um, that started in Tunisia, that's moved on to Egypt and Yemen and perhaps Jordan. Are you... Oh, yes. Are you absolutely. seeing this as, as a kind... Like, you know, you, you've been tracing the line between those kinds of human impulses and longings and 
the specter of terrorism, um, are you are you now seeing lines that are pretty visible between that and this kind of popular this this upright this this human uprising that we're watching that we don't know how yes how it I mean, will you, you just have to listen to these young people for two seconds and realize that finally they are seeing the possibility of their own hopes and dreams at least having some breathing space. Mm. And this is such a terribly exciting time for them. And they're the ones who are driving it. I mean, you know, I listen to the United States administration, and I realize how completely out of touch with with what's going on they are. So first we have the Secretary of State saying, you know, Mubarak is a stable government. It reminds me when John McCain said that the economy is sound, you know, just before it crashed. <laughs> uh, then the president comes on and says, well, we want... Mr. Mubarak to institute democratic reforms now. I mean, that's also nuts because people in Egypt aren't stupid. I mean, democracy takes time. They figure it'll take at least a decade because they don't have the other estates. They don't have a judiciary. They don't have a press. And they don't have uh, a parliament. So they, they're they afraid that if they try to institute democracy tomorrow, um, then it'll be like Mauritania which had a democratic election and then a military dictatorship a year after, or the Sudan, which had a democratic relationship, but they also had no estates, so there was a military dictator, brutal one, three years later. But the young people, want they want their hopes realized. And I think with the sort of adults out there, that is the ones who have been struggling for human rights despite the fact that they've been oppressed for all these years, they can and are trying to come together to, to build a way forward that's both idealistic mm-hmm. and that talks to their hopes and dreams and is is realizable. And into this, the United States just seems out of tune. I, I frankly can't understand why Obama, who seems to be a savvy guy who understands grassroots movements, um, seems to be missing this entirely. In fact, the entire United States political establishment seems to be missing this entirely. And they're buying, not only are they... They, they, they're having this sort of fickle thing about democracy now versus Mubarak. But now they're, they're, they're foisting this fear of the Muslim Brotherhood on everybody, which is part of the hysteria about 9-11. I mean, look at these guys. These guys are sort of keystone cops, the Muslim Brothers. They've been around for 83 years since 1928. They've never come close. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you may know that. I don't think everyone... You're right. I mean, there tends to be this generalized view of... Of terrorism and it's all Al Qaeda, right? And it's not even what Al Qaeda is, but something that we imagined on September 11th, 2001. I mean, I, I mean, Al Qaeda. Yeah. Al Qaeda was a specific group, and they mm-hmm. were a specific group of bad guys. They got lucky. They got lucky, but they pretty much don't exist anymore as a group. I mean, there are about a hundred of them left, uh, hiding from predator drones on the frontier of Afghanistan or Pakistan, or, or, or in cities like Karachi. Uh, and Lahore. There hasn't been one successful attack against the United States since 9-11. Most of the plots are sting plots by our law enforcement agencies. All the plots in Europe were not al-Qaeda directed. None of them were, except for sort of indirect one in the London Underground bombings. Uh, they're completely home homegrown. Uh, I think never in human history have so few people with so few actual means caused such fear in so many. Mm-hmm. And this this constant play by our political leaders and by our press into this hysteria over these 
actually a bunch of marginal knuckleheads for the most part. I mean, they get lucky from time to time, but it's not an existential threat to our society. And it's blinding us to the possibilities of political change in a world and political change which really could bring the world forward in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do, I'm sure, understand... Uh, clearly there's a lot of uh, there's a lot um of uncertainty about what happens next right and you and i are talking today and and everything could change tomorrow it's so fluid right as you say um people wonder if the muslim brotherhood will you know who will come to the fore and who will stay who will stay in charge who will be in charge a year from now so i mean what insight do you bring to that fear um, which is not which is not completely irrational. Um, what insight do you bring? What understanding can you bring to that about the well, nature? Well, I you of, know I yeah. spent all night actually talking to the Muslim Brother Politburo, the leadership, uh, just before this huge demonstration, this sort of million man demonstration, and with sort of human rights activists during the day until this interview today. And <clears throat> you get the impression that the Muslim Brotherhood is completely out of this thing. I mean, they. Again, they're a very small part. There are 100,000 out of 83 million people that belong to the Muslim Brothers. They, they're, they're, you know, they're touted as sort of 20 to 25 percent support in the population, but that's only because there's no secular group group that people can ally to mm-hmm. because they've all been stifled. I mean, if you, if you met someone in a cafe to talk politics, the cafe was shut down. But the authorities, since Nasser, could never shut down the mosques, so that was allowed to exist, and that's the only reason they have this support. But no one, again, takes it really seriously. But a lot of people do believe that the military, uh, I, of course, have a different opinion, but the people in Egypt, almost across the spectrum, believe, except for the Brotherhood, believe that the, the military should stay in power for a time to make this transition until the estates the press, the parliament, the independent judiciary can be established. Uh, no one thinks the Muslim brothers are a viable alternative, except for the only people I've found who believe it are the million people who live in the cemetery in Cairo, hmm. because they're so completely out of the out of the picture, and the Muslim brothers are the only ones who ever cared for them. That they would support the they would I believe they would support the brothers, but no one. Else, not the students, not the workers, not the uh, not the intellectuals, not the army, um, not the bakers and the candlesticks makers would support the brotherhood. Now, could they have a role? Uh, yeah, but they discredited themselves by first of all being co- completely unprepared for January twenty fifth's demonstrations, saying they wouldn't participate, and then when the demonstrations showed that that this was truly a popular uprising, they came out with this baloney statement that the reason they didn't join it is they didn't want to they didn't want to co-opt it and take the leadership, but they wanted to make sure that people were in tune with them, which is a bunch of malarkey. No one took that seriously. And then they flip-flopped again. So they, they came out uh, yesterday on Al Jazeera saying that they would support El Baradeh, El Barade, who is the uh, Nobel Prize winning uh, right. former head of the Atomic Energy Commission, International Atomic Energy Commission, who claims he's forming a coalition government. When I talked to the same guy, uh, Dr. Essam El-Iran uh, today, the spokesman for the Egyptian Brotherhood, he said, well, 
Um, it's up to the people to decide if Barade uh, will have this role. Only they can say what, what happened was Barade came out into the plaza in the Tahrir Square. No one came to his side. There were a few people who rallied around him out of these tens of thousands. The Brotherhood saw that and realized that they were backing the wrong horse, mm -hmm. and so they recalibrated. What, but the result of all this is that they, they lack all current credibility. Could they organize themselves into, a, into a, a group capable of taking over the government? I think not. The, okay. They have abandoned this sort of military cell structure mm -hmm. that was based on the old phalange and communist cells back in the, in the 1930s and 40s. That, that they, they, they gave them up where they were dismantled. And they have so many internal factions in the Brotherhood okay. that range from people who are sort of on the Hamas side to people who are just on the Islamic charity side that I think they'd fall apart if they didn't have a common enemy. So, you know, I want to keep talking about what you know from the scope of your work about the human dynamics that have fed um, the terrorist threat in recent years in the world, but also... As we're saying, it's such an interesting moment to be discussing this because those same energies and longings could also feed something very hopeful right now. Or maybe they're going to start feeding both things at the same time. I mean, so one thing you mentioned a minute ago is uh, that we we have been able to um, look at particular – at schools, for example, that have been then labeled breeding grounds for terrorism, madrasas. One of the observations you've made is that I think you're saying that we're not necessarily asking the right question. We're not saying what is it about that school that uh, makes it a breeding ground for terrorism, but the more pertinent question might be what is it about human friendship friendship that becomes such a powerful force? Yeah, I think that's that's right on. I mean, what is it about the way people bond? I and mean, even law enforcement. So I'm I'm asked a lot to to brief. Uh, law enforcement or counterintelligence or, you know, military people about uh, what I find in the mm -hmm. field. And uh, I find that they always concentrate on people who actually do things, who are involved in plots or who, who do something they call criminal, just like the, you know, our law enforcement or the FBI concentrates on the criminal act, an actor. Then you realize that, first of all, there's no command and control or hierarchy to any of this. It's pretty spontaneous, the jihad. And people come in and out of it all the time. Mm -hmm. They don't even know what the others are up to. Their plots are sort of scatterbrained. All of them fail except for one or two. Okay? Out of the mm -hmm. hundreds of plots, how many have succeeded? Really, almost none. And if you look at even the ones who succeeded, like Madrid, it was 39 people who didn't know what the other was doing. It was, it was I can tell you, it was like the Keystone Cops. It was so ridiculous with the with the police infiltrating three different groups but never able to, to, to figure out what was going on. The groups themselves weren't able to figure out what was going on. 9-11, too, the plots, the Hamburg plotters, the, pilot, the bomb plotters like Atta and Gerard and, and, and El-Shehi, they, they were confused guys. They were sort of doubly alienated in their neighborhood in Hamburg. They weren't Turks. They weren't Germans. They were all Middle Easterners. And they wanted to go to Bosnia. They, they got an apartment together. They sort of got into their parallel universe. Right. Neighbors told us. Neighbors told us the place stank because they never went out of the apartment. They brought in like 20 mattresses for their fellow travelers. They watched videos of Bosnia things. They came out of their parallel universe, their cocoon, wanting to do something heroic. 
they wanted to go to Bosnia, and the Bosnians told, uh, told them, forget it. Maybe you can get us some Russian goggles or something that are coming on the market in Germany. Then, then they wanted to go to Chechnya, and someone said, well, the Russians aren't going to let you into Chechnya. Then they met somebody on a train who basically said, well, maybe if you go to Pakistan, you can eventually get to Chechnya. And they wound up basically in an el- near Al-Qaeda where Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, whose proposal to Al-Qaeda, I mean, Al-Qaeda is like a funding organization, like the National Science Foundation. Okay. Uh, you, know, you apply to it. Nobody, mm. They have no recruiters. I mm. mean, people go looking for it. They don't go looking for anybody. And they accepted about 15 to 20% of their applicants. And they accepted Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's proposal to blow up planes. And he basically said to Bin Laden, look, boss, look what I got. I got these guys who want to go to Chechnya. They got visas. Maybe we can use them. So they're out there looking for adventure, and you, you don't even know which ones will eventually wind up in the plot or doing anything because, again, they themselves don't really know what's going on. And they have these sort of vague ideals and, and, and motives and hopes and desires. Mm-hmm. It congeals almost randomly around an opportunity mm-hmm. that arises spontaneously. But you also have said uncategorically, and I believe you've said this in testimony before Congress, that people in the end don't kill for a cause. They kill and die for each other. That it's, it's, that, it's those human bonds. Yeah, I mean, if you look at them, you know, people often ask me, so how are we going to, you know, they come up with these sophisticated models and predictors. And, and I say, you really want to know, you know, who's involved in a plot? Well, find one of the guys and look at what he eats and what he wears, and then you'll find the others because they're friends. Mm-hmm. Almost all of them are friends. Sometimes there's a family member, you know, a cousin or something, and then friends start marrying one another's sisters because the sisters cook for them, and they get to know one another. So you really want to know who gets involved. Look at their networks. Look at, their, look at what they eat. Look at what they wear. Look where they hang out. And it's not in mosques, by the way. I mean, people pray in mosques. You've got to be quiet. You, you plot in barbershops. You plot in cafes, fast food restaurants. You plot in soccer fields. You plot in picnics. You know, I found so many plots in weddings because it's like the opening scene of The Godfather. You know, people schmooze and mingle. It's a great place to get family and friends together and plot. Okay, now here, here's another really interesting thing you've, you've, you've pointed out, that, um, that organizations that, if, that are effective in bringing off these kinds of things often um, bring they, they awaken this... Family, this instinct of family and tribe that's so strong in in us as human beings, right? By that we're biologically hardwired, and that I mean, I I think that's really interesting. Point and it's no, it's no accident that 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 the names of organizations will be something like the Muslim Brotherhood, or you know, these we have even in when we think of um, camaraderie, bands of brothers, and we we think of that um, when human beings are capable of of acts that they normally wouldn't do on their own. Um, and then they, and, and this redirects these, these biological capacities in us to do anything, things that we wouldn't normally do for those who we consider to be part of our family. Yeah, that's, that's sort of the, you've sort of got the, the essence of what I'm actually interested in. I mean, I'm interested in why human beings are different than other animals and how they form these groups of genetic strangers through these notions of things like fictive kinship. I mean, there is no, I know of no political movement or territorial movement or even transnational movement 
that there's no large grouping of human beings that don't consider themselves in terms of brotherhoods or sisterhoods or fatherlands or homelands or mm-hmm. motherlands. It's all that always family vocabulary. And it's very strong. And all the sort of rites of passage and oaths people say are all couched in terms of, of these families. Mm. Now, these families, they're, they're biologically weaker, of course, than real genetic families. But how in the end do they become stronger? I mean, you think about the very word Islam means submission. And what is it submission to? Well, Mohammed makes it very clear. You must, you must submit your allegiance or efface your or surrender your allegiance to your family and your tribe to this larger group of, 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 of God, God-fearing individuals. This must take its place. The nation does the same thing. The nation basically says, I mean, think about it. It's also a sort of crazy notion. I mean, it, it's, it, it has all these flags and banners and oaths and principles which say you, your grouping among these strangers, even people you've never met and may never meet, is, must be stronger even than your relationship to your own kin. Now, mm-hmm. how do you do it? Well, there are evolutionary reasons why human beings who are absolutely weak, the weakest of all primates physically... Uh, you know, Darwin has this very interesting comment, said if we were gorillas, we'd never have nations because we'd be too strong. But we're so weak that we had to bond together with strangers to survive. And we got into competition with larger and larger groups, and we needed mechanisms to build these larger and larger groups. And that's what these sacred and transcendental values are all about. Now, here's the interesting thing. Cultures I study, say in New Guinea, sort of traditional cultures of the Amazon, they all describe themselves as the human beings, and all other human beings are considered almost like different species. Mm-hmm. You know, they recognize right. that they're close to human, but they're also very close to other animals, and they sort of characterize them as such. Now, monotheism created something completely new in the history of the world, and that's the notion that all human beings belong to the same kind. The sort of the, the Jewish notion of a chosen people under God and the Greek notion of universal laws merged in these universal religions along the Silk Road, along these Eurasian uh, co- commercial networks to create these religions like Christianity and Islam, which basically said, created two things in the world. One, the notion that everybody belongs to humanity and two, that everyone has a choice. You can elect to become a member of this kind. Mm-hmm. And so they started the notion that human beings could be saved, that there was good, those who were saved, and there were evil, those who were bad. No cultures before that actually thought in terms of good and evil. They thought in terms of the other? Of the other. The tribal other, but not... The tribal other. Mm -hmm. But now, with with the European Enlightenment and the French Revolution these universal monotheisms became secularized and brought down to earth. But if you think about it, these secular ideologies, all modern secular ideologies, all the isms, fascism, communism, socialism, anarchism, colonialism, democratic liberalism, are all variants on this monotheistic theme, however secular they are in appearance. They're salvational messianic ideologies, which believes the world must be saved and should be saved, whether they like it or not. Even uh, human rights is a version right. of this. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and so that's what drives us. So when you say, and you talked about this at the beginning, that sacred, that, that, that 
the way human beings hold to sacred or transcendent values uh, absolutely motivates us. You've, you've noted that it motivates us people more than uh, economic good, which is kind of an assumption we make in the West that economics trumps all. Um, and you also suggest that s- sacred values are not just religious, right? I mean, do you think that everyone, even uh, <laughs> secular liberals in the United States, say that there are sacred values that are motivating them, whether they would call it that or not? Is that what you're saying? Sure. That we all have yeah, I these? Do th- I, do, I do these experiments with my students. So my graduate students, for example, who are married, I, I, I invite them into a room. I say, this is a perception experiment. And I have them take off their wedding rings, and I have this fake jeweler who looks at them through this jewel glass and says he can make a perfect copy. And then I say, okay, we're, if, you leave a, if you leave your ring, he's going to make a perfect copy. Next week, you're going to have two rings. You're going to pick up one and get $1,000. But neither you or, not, or I will know which ring you picked up. Again, we couch it as a perception experiment. Except for those students who are getting divorced or come from different cultures that aren't interested in rings, they refuse. Uh, uh-huh, Even though the uh-huh. gold content is assured, here's another experiment. So we have these real estate, fake real estate agents. We ask the real real estate agent to go out for a while. And then people come in to sell their homes. And in one condition, we say, okay, what's the price? In another condition, we say, and besides, there's going to be a hospital for handicapped children on that plot. Their price goes significantly down. Or we say, there's going to be a shopping mall on that plot. The price goes significantly up. Again, that makes no economic sense. There's no economic sense to it. Mm -hmm. Any more than the economic sense of, well, how much would you be willing to give up for your child? I mean, people think you're nuts if you ask that sort of question. Well, sacred values are precisely those sorts of things. Now, the problem I come up with is... so. We did, this, we did this study with uh, Palestinian-Israeli leaders. We actually went to Mr. Netanyahu, and I went to the, uh, the Khalid Mashal, the head of the Politburo of Hamas in Damascus, and Mr. Abbas and all these other people. And uh, we asked them, you know, what do you, what do you want from the other side? So Mr. Netanyahu, for example, he said, look, there's only one thing I want to know from Mr. Mashal, the head of Hamas. Only one thing interests me. Would he, under any conditions whatsoever, ever recognize our right to be here? That's all I want to know. I asked Mr. Michal, and he said, well, how can you ask someone who's prison to recognize the rights of his jailer? Let me out, and we can discuss it. Then I asked Mr. Michal, what do you want from Mr. Netanyahu? And his answer was, I want him to recognize, to apologize for what happened to us, to our people in 1947 and 1948, for making us refugees, for me being here where I am now instead of my home. <clears throat> now, we then went and did these massive surveys and experiments with thousands of people. Right, didn't we, you interview almost 4,000 Israelis yeah. and Palestinians? Mm-hmm. And we came up with this, with, with this sort of, I think, stunning conclusion. That is, if you offer people money or disincentives like sanctions, to change their mind, to trade off a sacred value, they become violent, even more violent, disgusted and angry, and entrenched in their, hmm. in their unwillingness to compromise. Just as if I offered you, you know, $50,000 and then a million dollars to trade your child. You'd just become disgusted after a while and even, you know, get this guy out of my face kind of thing. 
But then when we ask them, what if the other side gave you a gesture of no material value whatsoever? Namely, they apologized. That's all. No promise to take in refugees or anything like that on the Israeli side. Or if the Palestinians said to the Israelis, okay, we recognize your right to be here. That's it. Then we found that opposition to a peace treaty, even among hardcore elements of the Israeli right and the Hamas, declined significantly. And we've replicated these experiments all over the world. Now, here's the problem. When we come to leaders and we give our results, you know, I've presented this at the White House and I've presented it at Congress, they all sort of nod their heads and say, yeah, yeah, I, that's right. People do things for principles. But no one ever recognizes the legitimacy of principles on the other side that don't happen to jive with one's own. And so they think other people are pure materialists and consequentialists. But they have principles. <laughs> but they that, themselves that, have principles. That's right. Uh-huh. So, so how, do you, how, do you, how do you bridge that? Because that's, I think, what's responsible for the most intractable conflicts in the world today. Once you recognize that, you recognize that business-like negotiations, sort of standard approaches to negotiations, backfire. And that's the wrong way to go. But again, that's what our diplomatic corps and that's what our political leadership is taught in their schools. So you need a different way. Now, I have ideas about how you can go based on sort of history and sort of other experiments, but that's another story. It's interesting that story you tell about the the power of an apology actually um, corresponds to a conversation I had once with a clinical psychologist who, who's actually studied um, revenge instincts in human beings and I mean they can look at what happens in our brains and that 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 apology is actually an incredibly powerful tool that it calms some of those violent um, instincts and I mean that's, that's why div- yeah. that's why divorce lawyers don't like apologies <laughs> because they would lose their fees yes and they all they systematically tell their clients, never apologize. You open yourself for all sorts of concessions. But that's almost never the case. But it's, I mean, when people actually- yeah. So it's interesting to think about this as a primal fact about humanity, and yet uh, it's, it's, it, is, it is a leap to imagine it being applied to the geopolitical sphere. And yet you're saying that that's precisely what has to happen because these are human conflicts with human beings involved. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I just wrote this paper with a psychologist for the Proceedings of the Royal Society in Biology. It's called The Clausewitz Delusion. You know, the idea, for example, even that war is politics by other means. No. War is tearing of the flesh. It is a violent uh, attitude towards someone else. For what? Because their world, their way of dealing with the world, their thinking about the world is different from your own. And you feel you must destroy it. And, of course, revenge is a huge part of things. But it's always, why is war, for example, always moral? It's always noble. It's always a great thing. The soldiers are always heroes, no matter really what they do. And that's because, and this ties right into the jihad, it is moral. It is an affirmation of who you are and what the moral virtues of your own society are. And it is violent, but also adventurous and thrilling and exciting and passionate. And those are the things that really move human beings. Mm -hmm. And we have to deal with it. And we have to figure out how to do it without blowing ourselves up. 
but I don't think we can wish it away. So tell me what you've learned in these past years as you have been out there talking to suicide bombers and potential suicide bombers. And, uh, I mean, as you say, these are there are layers of this, and you, you can go farther and farther away from it. I mean, what have you learned about how people get out, how they walk away from that, um, how that longing and that passion um, can be transferred in more positive directions? What's powerful enough to take them away? Well, as you, as you sort of implied, there's, it's a pathway to violence, and mm-hmm. it depends on where along this pathway you catch these young people. So it usually happens like this. So there's a, you're sort of a larger counterculture out there. For whatever reason, people are not happy. They believe there's injustice in the current state of things. And so they, they protest and they want change. Now, then usually what happens is that a small group, for whatever reason, maybe one or two individuals in this small group, break away from the sort of counterculture. And they say, you guys haven't been doing enough. Uh-huh. You've been talking and talking and talking and nothing has happened, and we're going to do something. And when they break away, then they, we find they move into a sort of parallel world. That is, they usually get a place together or go out into the country together and live this sort of isolated life or lock themselves up in an apartment or somehow withdraw and build this, this world that they think is better and will be better through their actions. Now, once they're in this mode... It's a lot harder to get to them because they're sort of locked in. They've built this sort of sacred view of one another, and they've locked it into their own friendship, personal friendships, so that their, the, the notion of the cause and f- their friendship is almost inextricably bound. And once they're in that stage, the only people I've found that can bring them out of it are those very, very close to them that haven't made this move. Hmm. So. The only so again, it comes I, down to this relational, this the, the friendship circles somehow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The only, for example, the only groups uh, that I've ever s- so I was in Sulawesi with a bunch called the Thafamukatila of suicide uh, uh, bombers, attackers against Christian militia, and the ones, the only ones who could get them out were a group of Salafis, who talked to them and said, "Look, I understand what you want. You want." To reduce injustice in the world, you want Islam to prosper. This isn't the way to do it. This is a better way. And they got them to do it. Now, when I hear our people or president of France, because I'm also French, talk about, uh, you know, we're going to have moderate imams and preach the true nature of religion to these people. I ask, what world are these leaders living in? First of all, moderate. You've got to be kidding. When was the last time you told your kids to be moderate about their boyfriends or choice <laughs> of career? I mean, they basically say, yeah, right, mom, right, dad, okay, and then they become. And as far as true message of religion, the whole thing about religion is it has no true message. It is true for people in a certain time, in a certain context. Otherwise, religions would have disappeared once, you know, after 2,000 years, once conditions changed. So it can't be about some eternal message, and it can't be about moderation. It's got to be, again, about things that are exciting, thrilling, hopes and dreams. Mm -hmm. And if we go back to that poll I took where Obama beat out bin Laden, that was in November 2009. But look what happens now. We just did a poll. 
and Obama comes in out dead 2011, late. In 2011, late 2010. In 2010. Mm-hmm. He comes out dead last. Ahmadinejad beats him out. Nasrallah beats him out. Bin Laden beats him out. Okay, so Why? what's that about? It's because these young people were looking to him for hope. And they found their hopes in him. And then, for whatever reason, and it's quite understandable from our domestic political agenda that he couldn't really deliver in a short time on those hopes. Nothing was done. And when they look around and they see things like Israel and Palestine or Afghanistan and things get just worse, Mm -hmm. then they think that they have been taken down the garden path and they become angry. And it's almost better as if he said nothing at all. Now, again, you know, I often try to talk to to even leaders in these different countries and say, look, the American political establishment is such that if a president tries to do too much on the foreign, on intractable foreign conflicts, especially in his first administration, then he's out. So you usually have to wait till the end of a second administration where a president can really concentrate on these intractable issues. But again, those people live in their own world and their own priorities. And so they see this as hypocritical. Well, rather Americans than... don't even have patience for that. Right? <laughs> yeah, but they're a little more understanding. Yeah. <laughs> um, so something that, as I watch, um, I mean, I think, you know, again, what you're describing about young people wanting hope, there's a lot of expression of hope going on right now on streets in Middle Eastern cities. Um, we don't know how that's going to turn out, but one of the fears that gets voiced very quickly in the States, and I'm sure in Europe, is uh, what if the religious fanatics take right? But something that I, I, I think comes up in your writing and, and that is very much on my mind is we have no memory in the United States of how important religiously based, very deeply religiously based, civic organizations were in the beginnings of American democracy. Right, the YMCA, the YWCA, the Boy Scouts, um, and even well into the 20th century. Um, do you think about about how uh, how um, Islamic Muslim religious organizations can be a very cons- could be a very constructive part of what will be young democracies if um, if things unfold peacefully? Yes, they could well be. And there are actually elements of the Muslim Brotherhood who could fit right right, right into that. Uh-huh. And, but there are other Islamic organizations, I think, that are much more powerful than the Muslim Brotherhood, at least in terms of their relations with society in places like Egypt. Uh-huh. You know, most people on the outside give you this sort of dichotomous view of the Muslim Brotherhood. They're either al-Qaeda in the waiting or they're sort of soup kitchen guys who do only nice charity work. Both are equally sort of nutty. I mean, you mean both of those characterizations? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. the Muslim Brotherhood and Al Qaeda can't stand one in, one another. I mean, Zawahiri, his his whole career was based on bashing the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, and Bin Laden as well. And as far as soup kitchens are concerned, I actually, if you if you actually count the number of soup kitchens by the Muslim Brotherhood in a city of tw- of sixteen million by day and twenty million by night, Cairo. There are six, exactly six Muslim Brotherhood clinics, right, out of thousands. But most of the thousands are also Islamic. Hmm. Now, the reason they're Islamic is because people are Islamic. Yeah. Egypt's a religious society. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at the history of the United States, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, when de Tocqueville, even Engels, when he goes to California, 
he's writing back to Marx and say, look, we got this all wrong. I mean, these, we've got to change <laughs> the communist manifesto. not the opium manifesto. after all. I didn't know right. that Engels wrote to Marx. From yeah, California. and Marx says, well, we'll deal with it. Won't we? <laughs> he goes, we got this all wrong. I mean, these people are very, are very progressive and lively and seem to have free exchanges, and they're mm. basing their lives in these community churches and things like that. And he goes, we, we've just got to reconsider here. Mm. And it is. It was America's community-based religious establishments that were the basis of things like credit. I mean, the Americans virtually, right. I mean, the Jewish community introduced credit, but the Americans were the first nation that were based on credit. And credit, which made the economy flow and produce, was strictly a church-based, mm. family-based community affair. I mean, mm. there's this wonderful anecdote of Max Weber, the, one of the founders of sociology. At the turn of the last century, he's in a, he's in a train going through the south of the United States, and he's sitting in a car with an undertaker and uh, a sawmill owner. And they're talking for two days about their families and the church. And then, just as the undertaker is about to get off, he asks for so many million board feet from the sawmill guy. And Weber goes, well, what the hell happened here? I mean, you guys have been talking for two days. You never mentioned business, and all of a sudden, you make this huge business deal. And the undertaker says, well, sure. I mean, if he didn't care for his family and his church the way I did, mm. then I wouldn't give a plum nickel mm. for the value of the deal. So it is and it was and still is to a great deal a part of of what made America America. Now, mm -hmm. that's falling apart. I mean, uh, Robert Putnam in this wonderful book called Bowling Alone uh, describes how that, how that is breaking apart right. and that... As a result, we're into a different culture based on, you know, sort of legalistic, uh, lawyerly uh, contracts and transactions and where and we're personal notions of trust, especially with strangers, increases inordinately. And I think that that also feeds into our political system, mm -hmm. makes us less able to understand what is happening in the rest of the world. Right. I remember... Um Right after the war in Iraq uh, started and ended, uh, back when we were still talking about building civil society, you know, before it just turned into this entrenched conflict. And uh, there, I spoke with a young Iraqi American who'd been over there with the Coalition Provisional Authority consulting on how to rebuild the school system, right? And he was saying, why isn't the U.S. government helping create Muslim Chambers of Commerce, because that's exactly the kind of organization that was the glue, again, of early American democracy for hundreds of years. I mean, Christian-based Chambers of Commerce, that kind of thing. Because one of the things is that uh, the reaction, the hysterical reaction to 9-11 has created this notion of Muslims as an alien force uh, to the United States. Mm -hmm and a rival in the world. Uh, just look at the reaction to the cultural center uh, in uh, New York, the proposed cultural center. Uh, the majority of the American... We actually did a study, studies of this. Uh, Republicans were overwhelming against it. Democrats were, were against it, except for some who believe that even though Islam is intolerant, we should show tolerance, and that shows the superiority of our sacred and transcendental values. Hmm. But... The idea that, you know, Islam is very similar to Christianity or anything else. I mean, it's a broad-based social movement that gives a sense of significance to people. And it runs the gamut, just like all religions do, basically, 
uh, from good to bad. There's huge diversity, huge diversity. Huge. Mm-hmm. Everything good that you can think of has been religiously inspired from creativity and art and music to intellectual endeavors and everything bad mm-hmm. from war and genocide and murder to torture. Mm-hmm. But that's also been the case with secular governments as well. I mean, there are modes modes of being, of how people reconcile the contradictory yearnings and aspects of their human nature. We need them. We can't exist in a logical world because we, we can't even accept things like death and deception, which, which are inevitable <laughs> because right. our, our brains don't accept it. I mean, if they did, that we'd spend our entire time trying to struggle against it. Mm. So there's a reason that we have these transcendental ideas, however secular in appearance. And it is a shame that the United States and its leaders and, and, and population are now sort of rejecting uh, this, large, this, this large aspect of, of the world, namely, namely the Islamic world. And the people in the Islamic world feel this, despite the rhetoric oh, that no one is anti-Islamic and that we, there's a place for everybody in our society. The reality of it is there isn't. And that's, I think, a tragedy, and it's leading to, to, to conflict, even among former, former friends of ours. And uh, unless, unless we find a way to reconcile ourselves with, with this, this, these changes in the world, then uh, I have a feeling we're going to be left in the lurch. So um, it's, it, it's easier to draw implications um, of this kind of insight to how foreign policy might change, right? How, how uh, diplomats might behave. I, I wonder how you think about how ordinary citizens might uh, take in um, some of the larger perspective that you and others offer. And, you know, is there a way in this, in this technologically connected world also for American citizens to weigh in more positively. You know, let's say just taking this premise of yours that so much of our thinking and acting has to, has to start with what it means to be human and, and, and take that into account in all its fullness. Well, it's hard because mm-hmm. people are constantly... Um, reminded of their sort of tribal aspects, that there's an enemy out there. And we seem as human beings to need enemies to drive us forward as well. I don't... I I think that um, there is a place for spontaneous movements of our people, especially our young people, in forging new ideas and perhaps eventually weighing in on, on our society. But there's also an aspect of our society that if you were a sort of Martian authoritarian, you might well have devised. I mean, if you look at the range of political opinion in the United States, it's fairly restricted. I mean, we even think that uh, social democrats in Europe are socialists and communists, and they're way off on the left of our political spectrum, mm-hmm. and that Muslims are, um, you know, sort of rightist fanatics. I, I I had an interesting dinner with someone very close to uh, the president's president's administration, and uh, I, w- I went through my sort of shtick about never before have so few people caused such hysteria and so many, and he posed an interesting question to me. He said, okay, maybe the president agrees with you. Maybe the president does agree that the threat of terrorism and the reaction of the United States to it has been outsized. 
that we have overreacted. But now what do you do? Mm -hmm. What would you advise the president to do to help convince the American people that the political landscape has changed and we should deal with the rest of the world in a different way? He said it's a little bit like turning a... Sh the way you... you weigh policy works is you, it's like turning a giant aircraft carrier in a small port. <laughs> yeah. You cannot give, as most people do on their blogs or in op-eds, these grand, sudden changes and expect them to be meaningful at all. Mm -hmm. It's got to be by small steps. And what small steps? Well, I went to the University of Virginia and the University of Michigan, and I posed this to you know, foreign policy people. And I said, so what would you suggest? And it's fascinating. They all came with data-driven, evidence-based arguments for what's wrong and what we should do. And I, I sort of said, look, guys, that's not going to work. First of all, outside of the economy, people are not interested in evidence and data or even truth. People are interested in persuading, mm -hmm. in victory, and confirming what they believe in or love. Second, you haven't addressed any of the emotional aspects of this, which really drive people. Right. Revenge. Revenge and fear. Fear. Mm -hmm. You haven't even touched on those. How do you lessen that? Why is it that an earthquake or what was called back in the 1920s in an old study by Henry Ford, the jerk effect, when all of a sudden you hit a pothole, why is that so much more powerful emotionally than real threats? Why, why, why is... You know, if you look at the data, you'd find that even frequent flyers have a better chance of being killed by a lawnmower than in the terrorist attack. But people aren't worried <laughs> about dying by lawnmower. Right. Didn't you, so, didn't you tell a story in one of your books about, about uh, the, uh, even at the height of the Cold War, that some American president said that if only we were attacked by Martians, we would, all of our differences would disappear? Right. That's uh, Reagan to Gorbachev. Reagan to Gorbachev. Right, right. Yeah, but anyway, that's, yeah. That's, that, that's the... See, here's, here's what I think is the greatest political challenge of all. In addition to dealing with fear and revenge, there's something which I'd like to call sort of something like the principle of enmity. Human beings are most mobilized when we have enemies. I mean, just look at novels. Look at the news. Hmm. No one's interested in happy, good-feeling, cooperative things. I mean, people, when they're tired of war and they're tired of conflict and competition, then they'll go back on it. But what really drives interest and passion mm -hmm. is competition and, and conflict. So the question is, can we actually lessen conflict without having enemies? Well, there are two answers to that. One is the sort of Gorbachev-Reagan Reagan's proposal to Gorbachev. We can come up with some kind of enemy. Yeah, maybe another common enemy. <laughs> and the enemy of my uh -huh. enemy, right? right? Uh, or we can change it to a, to a sort of abstract enemy like poverty hmm. or killing or, or something like that. And, and that sort of reminds me of something how I actually ended the book. You know, Abraham Lincoln is is making a speech during the latter stages of the Civil War where he's, where he's describing the Southern rebels as human beings like anyone else. And a woman, an elderly woman, a staunch unionist, upbraids him for speaking kindly of his enemies when he should only be thinking of destroying them. And Lincoln says to the woman, Madam, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? And if you think about it, Wars are truly won only in two ways. You either exterminate your enemy 
or you make them your friends. And I think that we have not thought very deeply about the latter alternative, I, I, especially when I see uh, how we're reacting to these young people around the world. I'll give you... Well, yeah, but, 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 but I think but this does present a moment of opportunity, doesn't it? I mean, you have been writing about this restlessness and rootlessness that defines a lot of young people's reality in the world today, and then in some cases has, has led them to be receptive to this terrorist message. But right now, that restlessness and rootlessness is expressing itself in a very hopeful and powerful way. Um, I mean, this could present an opportunity for us, right? For it does. Americans I mean, it's, it's to like those, react to yeah. that differently. It's like those little kids who are between Obama and Osama. I mean, the the ones right now who are out in the streets of Cairo and Amman are hopeful that a democratic change is possible, and that they can, for the first time in their lives, not only achieve some kind of modicum of economic security, but hopes for their political aspirations, whatever they may be. Mm -hmm. And they see this as an opportunity. And the United States, I regretfully, is not seeing that, or at least not seeing it in their terms. They're seeing it through the old lenses of the how the political structure of the world appeared to them uh, on the eve of 9-11 or before. You have even talked about us being, um, not not with regard to very recent events, but uh, they may be an expression of it, talk, talked about humanity being on the cusp of the second great tipping point in human history. Tell me what you mean by that, pulling the lens way back. Well, I sometimes see myself, you know, sort of uh, among the ancient Maya or in ancient Sumeria when writing is first coming onto the scene. And the possibility, I, I, I wouldn't have been able to see the, I mean, I'd be able to sort of imagine vaguely some, some of the possibilities, but if you think about writing what it did, I mean, establishing words and records and memory for all time, augmenting the memory that human beings have, establishing things like contracts, making long-distance trade possible, even making things like the building of roads possible. And then you see what's happening on, in the world today, in Internet, in Facebook, in the media, and you realize that things like nations and libraries and the world as we have known it over the last 3,500 years is changing at an incredible pace. Now, young people are beginning to, they're born into it now, and so they grasp it right away, and mm -hmm. they're moving in a completely different space than us old geezers. And we're now seeing it have political power. In a, in yeah, a way. but unfortunately, most of our political guys are still in a completely different world. Hmm. It's, it's, it's as if they're in a world of, of you know, buggies and carriages and horses. And, <laughs> and, then, and then I hear them come out with their political proposals. It's like saying, well, I have got a really good buggy stick. It's really the best <laughs> one we can follow. And you ask yourself, what is the relevance of hmm. a buggy stick hmm. in this new world? Hmm. And, and, and I see the vast possibilities of, of this world, of, of a social brain. Uh, just think about the, the networking possibilities of knowledge and access to knowledge that yeah. people have now. Yeah. I mean, again, people now in New Guinea can link up with what people in New York are doing 
and work together with their different experiences and lives and come up with new, new, new possibilities for, for human life. Right. And this is happening at an incredibly fast rate. And it's something that I don't think our traditional political establishments are, are, are at all capable of dealing with. And I think there will be huge upheavals as a result, economic and social. So, you know, at the beginning of your book, um, which is called Talking to the Enemy, Faith, Brotherhood, and the Unmaking of Terrorists, right? Before yeah. the table of contents. You have this absolutely beautiful picture of children. Looks like they're either coming out of school or going to school. They're beautiful children. It's kind of a heartbreaking picture in a lovely way. And then I read underneath that it's a school that you mentioned earlier on. That this, if a school's out at this school in Morocco uh, from which five of the seven plotters of the Madrid train bombing who blew themselves up attended, as did several volunteers for martyrdom in Iraq. Tell me why you put that picture at the beginning of your book and what you would like, uh, and we'll put it up on our website, you know, what, what you would like a reader or someone coming to these ideas to see in that picture? Because those are the terrorists. Those are those who would be terrorists or would be us or our friends. And it is up to us and how we deal with the political world and the hopes and dreams that emerge in their own societies that will decide whether they go one way or the other. It's not, again, the fact that there are good or bad ideologies out there. It's not the fact of economic lack or presence of economic opportunities, per se. It's whether there are paths in life that can lead them to something that's more congenial to the way we live in the world. I think we have many things to offer, but not in the way we're doing it. I mean, I'm reminded very much of Maximilien Robespierre's statement to the Jacobin Club at the, on, in the French Revolution, uh, a statement he promptly forgot, which was, no one loves armed missionaries. And it is in the natural course of things to oppose them wherever you find them. No one loves armed missionaries. No one loves our, the fact that we have troops out there in the world trying to preserve or push democracy or whatever. Uh, as uh, Jefferson said, the way we're going to change the world is by our example. Never, never can it be by the sword. Now, sometimes you have to fight things. When people want to kill you, when people want to blow you up, then you have to fight them. There may be, at its time, no opportunity. But that's not the case with the vast majority of people who could possibly become tomorrow's terrorists. And that's where, that's where the fight for the world and the next generation will be. It will be in the next generation of these young people, the ones caught between should we go the path of happiness as martyrdom or should we go to the path of yes, we can. They're both very enticing paths. I think one has a lot, much, a lot more to offer, but we have to show them it has more to offer and we have to show them now. And that's what they're asking for right now. Okay. Well, um, I think that's your last word and this is really been fantastic um i I'll, I'll let you know what we're what we're doing with it um yep. are you are you going to be in the states i don't know you divide your time don't you yeah but we can get you by email right yes okay um 
So this, do you have any idea when you're gonna, when you might uh, broadcast? I think this? we're gonna broadcast it um, within the next couple of weeks. I mean, it's a weekly show. We've already got this week's, you know, but the show is done on Thursdays, so we can't, we can't do it right away. But we will go ahead and put it on the air soon. So I'll, I'll let you know. It's a produced show. Um, Okie doke. It was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Glad you're out there doing what you're doing. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.